2: a new book called fight the power looks at the long history of police brutality in new york city the author is clarence taylor professor emeritus at the cuny graduate center and baruch college my name is beth harpaz i'm the edu we showcase work from the cuny community like professor taylor's book today i'll be talking with him about police brutality and the nypd for a podcast hosted by the gotham center for new york city history and New Books Network. Hi, Professor Taylor, and thanks for talking me to me today about your new book, Fight the Power. Yes, hello, and thank you for having me on. Uh, I want to start by mentioning the Black Lives Matter movement, which has done a a really good job of bringing attention to killings involving the police in the last few years, including, of course, uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Eric Garner in New York City. But your book takes a much longer view and maybe for some readers uh, might be surprising that there are so many instances in which people of color have been killed by police in New York City. Uh, We're not talking about Bull Connor in Birmingham, Alabama, ordering attacks on civil rights protesters in the 1960s. Your book documents dozens of cases across the 20th century into the present day, in which people of color died at the hands of the NYPD. Give us an overview of the time frame that you looked at. Why did you choose that time frame? And why does this perspective matter?
1: Well, the time frame that uh, that I focus on in this book is from the 1940s uh, up to the uh, present. Uh, and the, r- the reason I chose the 1940s, uh, I could have gone back even earlier. I could have gone back to the uh, period when you know, police departments were uh, being created in the, the late 19th century uh, professional police uh, departments. But I chose this, this period because this is when you have the explosion in the black population in uh, New York. Uh, Thanks to uh, the black migration. uh, Thanks to folks coming from the Caribbean uh, into the city and so you see the growth of Harlem. You see the growth of Bedford Stuyvesant. And this is when you really start having a organized attempt to take on police brutality uh, in the city from various groups that really get very little attention. Uh, uh, Other scholars have written about police brutality. They have focused on, you know, um, the horrific uh, conditions that uh, blacks face at the hands of the police. But um, th- this book focuses on not only these incidents, but how um, black, uh, African-American black folks in New York City um, organized to take on uh, police brutality.
2: One of the most interesting sections of the book looks at how newspapers that served the Black community covered police violence, um, spe- specifically in the 20th century. Uh, now, this is not only before cell phones, so, you know, there's no video for onlookers to be collecting to show us what happened. Uh, but a lot of the accounts that you reference uh, were published before everybody had a TV in their living room, right? And then even after, you know, most people had TVs at home, Black communities still were not getting their stories told. Uh, so how did the Black media fill that gap? What were some of those newspapers called? And how did those reporters establish credibility for the stories that they were telling about uh, incidents of police brutality?
1: Yeah, you are absolutely correct. I mean, <laughs> you know, Many people think that uh, police brutality is a, a recent phenomenon. Uh, thanks to cell phones, thanks to uh, video uh, recorders. Um, But as you know, this is a long history and completely ignored by those in power, uh, ignored by the law enforcement. In fact, uh, many uh, made the argument there was no such thing as police brutality. That was an excuse used by criminals but uh, African Americans, of course, uh, as the victims uh, said, "Look, we you know we really have to uh, launch an effort to uh, stop uh, being brutalized, stop being killed by uh, police officers, because it was a major problem uh, and still is a major problem." Uh, the black press was one of the most important institutions taking on uh, police brutality. Uh, in New York City, uh, there were a number of black publications, you know, the Amsterdam News, one of the longest uh, black publications still in existence today. Uh, you had uh, the New York Age, um, you had uh, uh, the Crisis, uh, which was a national pay- paper, uh, a magazine, but... Uh, uh, head, headquartered in New York City. The, that was the uh, organ of the uh, the uh, NAACP. Uh, but the paper that I focus on in uh, this book is one that many people never heard of, and that is The People's Voice. This was a paper organized by the, the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell, Jr. Famous uh, name. Famous name, that's right. Uh, who became the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church, uh, perhaps the largest black uh, church in the the nation uh, at one point um, by the 1950s, claiming 10,000 members. Uh, but uh, back in the, the 1940s, uh, uh, Paul created The People's Voice because he wanted to move away from the sensationalism uh, that uh, many other Black publications really focused on. He said he wants to focus on the conditions of Harlem, and one of those conditions was police brutality. Uh, This paper, and and like many other black uh, uh, newspapers, didn't only just report on police brutality. Uh, They became uh, leading forces to challenge uh, police brutality. They were part of what I call the anti-police brutality movement uh, in New York City. Uh, So what the, The Voice did and other papers did, was not only just tell the story, but they would take the side of the victim. They would challenge the police um, um, uh, reports, uh, the, the, piece, the police narrative of, of the event, very critical uh, police narratives. They would go out and the people's voice is very good at this. They would get witnesses they called impartial witnesses who weren't members of people's family but who just happened to be on the scene of a police brutality incident and get their stories. Of course they would take the victim's stories, but in some cases with many uh, some of these victims were killed by police, right? Uh, so they would always have someone who was somewhat, uh, someone who they said was impartial, uh, an eyewitness to, to the event. Uh, In in addition uh, to this, the uh, black press came up with ways of taking on police brutality. They never classified it as just rogue cops. They said, no, this was essentially a a problem of the department.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And in in particular, it was a, a problem of power. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: That uh, the police had overwhelming power over the citizens and the citizens clearly needed uh, some avenues of relief in in order to, you know, challenge uh, that power. So uh, the black press was, uh, uh, you know, they kept the story alive. You know, uh, that, that was another way of doing it. They just didn't just drop the, 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 the report they, uh, or, or, the you know, just uh, talk about the incident at one time. I mean, they kept it in the news uh, constantly uh, until they can essentially get justice in case of people's voice. And they even organized uh, rallies. demonstrations. I think this was unusual for newspapers, right? Right, right.
2: They were were truly advocates for their readers and they were trying to hold these institutions accountable. Uh, You know, like you say, they weren't just saying, oh, this is what happened. They were, you know, saying this is a systemic problem and we need systemic answers. One of the things, I'm a former journalist. I worked for the Associated Press for almost 30 years. One of the things that was so interesting in what you uh, wrote was When they would interview witnesses, they almost went about it like a lawyer would present a witness to a jury by establishing credibility for this person. And I I loved your description of, you know, they would say, well, Mr. So-and-so was an eyewitness and, you know, he's. However many years old he is, and he works at a hotel and the people at the hotel say he's a very reliable worker, like they would make sure that every person they interviewed, you know, was a fine and upstanding citizen. So therefore, what they say can be trusted. And yeah. I just thought that that was just a really interesting um way for them to do this kind of journalism to create these, uh, you know, this credibility for every witness to make sure that we could trust what this person said, because they knew they were going up against the official account, right, coming from the police department, coming from the city of New York, uh, and that they had to create some kind of a, a, you know, a standard uh, by which this alternate account could be judged truthful or acceptable.
1: That, that is correct and I should also note uh they also did this for the victims right All right because uh, uh a, the police report would always describe the person committing a criminal act right. Uh, and so they would uh, not only have a witness who would tell the story, but they would also point out that this person was, was not a criminal. This person was not living a criminal life. You know, this is, usually was a, a person who was um, uh, you know upstanding citizen, uh, you know, who had a job, right, who right. could never been in trouble before, arrested. Uh, so... Uh, this was a way of challenging, you know, the sort of dominant police narrative. Uh, yeah. yeah.
2: Now, uh, you you also contend throughout the book that the mainstream New York City media, not the black press, but you know the other media, and in you know in the mid 20th century, there were many daily newspapers in New York City. We're down to, I guess, basically three or four. Uh, but, you know, there were multiple daily newspapers in, in the 20th century in New York City, um, and and you pretty much contend that, uh, you know, the narrative from from the mainstream press actually helped city officials kind of cover up these allegations of wrongdoing by the cops by painting this portrait of Black communities as lawless places filled with criminals, and at the same time painting the cops as always right beyond any judgment. What was the impact of the, that coverage, and, and if I've, if I've summarized it incorrectly please uh, give your own uh, spin on on how you how you see it all okay no you you are correct <laughs> that uh mainstream press
1: uh, always took the side of uh, the police yeah you know, they always reported the police version of of events uh, and in this way uh reinforcing this notion that um, Communities like Harlem, communities like Bedford-Stuyvesant, predominantly black communities, were just uh, festering with crime. Uh, They were loaded with criminals. And so the police uh, had to essentially do their job. Uh, And and by the way, this is why I argue uh, this is why police brutality is one of the hardest civil rights issues to address. It's pretty apparent. You're a citizen. You should have the right to vote. You're denied the right to vote. That's an infringement on someone's civil rights. But when it comes to police brutality, people don't see it that way. right? It's uh, essentially the police word against those of the victim. And if the victim is portrayed as a uh, criminal uh, coming from a, quote, criminal race, uh, then it's very difficult to uh, get reforms, right, to bring about uh, change, to get the support of the public. And so newspapers were uh, really crucial in reinforcing uh, this notion of uh, Blacks as criminals. Um, uh, by one reporting the story of the police and one just completely ignoring um, uh, that of uh, of the victims.
2: Right. And, and you know, I, I think it, it maybe is worth sort of underscoring here that, you know, many of these incidents that you rec- recount um they, a lot of them are just like out of the blue. I mean, it's not like the police were actually responding or, you know, breaking up some crime in progress. You know, sometimes there were and their response uh, involved excessive Force in you know arresting the alleged perpetrator or whatever but a lot of the incidents that you describe I mean they just sound like you know the cops would just go into a bar or find somebody on a street corner and, and just get out of control right?
1: That That is correct uh, or they would harass uh, young people uh, uh, in the subways or, you know, just walking uh, uh, on the street. Yeah, th- this is the uh, the problem, I said, of power. You know, right. When one has, you know, this immense power and it doesn't go, uh, uh, it's not challenged.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS?
2: Right. And, and I think, you know, it's uh, it's it's amazing. We just have had this incident in New York City with this young woman and her baby uh, in an office where she was waiting to uh, uh, deal with a, a food stamp application. And she sat on the floor, according to the various accounts I've read, and the security folks in the in the food stamps office didn't want her to sit on the floor. She got in an argument with them. Somebody called the cops. And now you have this video of the cops, you know, wrenching this little baby, this baby out of her arms i mean if you saw a parent pulling a baby like that out of somebody else's arms that parent would be charged with child abuse i mean i'm stunned that kid's arm wasn't dislocated um and so i you know if if people Kind of, and I say this because I think sometimes in these cases where there's allegations of police brutality, what the cops and, and the officials always say is, oh, well, that person was, you know, they were committing a crime or there was a, you know, there was some kind of an altercation involved. And I I feel like this video of this young woman in the food stamps office is like, she's like the poster child for like, she didn't do anything wrong. And these people are coming in there, you know, gangbusters. Um, and I think it's it's a very good example of, uh, you know, of, of the kinds of things that you know that we're talking about. Although she wasn't injured, and of course, in the cases that you're documenting, you know there were horrific injuries and and deaths at the hands of the police. Um, yeah. And 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 this kind of brings me to my next question, which is about mayors, because um, they are they're an important part of the 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 problem and the potential solution here. Historically, New York City mayors uh, criticized the NYPD at their peril. Uh, look at Mayor De Blasio. He he basically ended stop and frisk as we know it. Then he goes to a police funeral, and hundreds of police officers turn their backs on him. And we noticed in this most recent interview with this young woman in the food stamps office, he was very reluctant to criticize the cops. He finally said something on Twitter, but it was a a very muted, uh, well, this is disturbing and we'll have to investigate. Um, I guess there have been a few mayors over the decades who have tried to establish ways to hold police accountable for wrongful deaths of civilians and and other brutality incidents, but it hasn't gone well. And I wondered if you would talk about that, especially Mayor Lindsay and the civilian complaint review board. Board and how that's evolved over the years. I know Mayor Lindsay's uh, tenure is a specialty of yours.
1: Yes. Um, <laughs> Lindsay uh, did take on, attempted to take on uh, police brutality. Um, there was a major campaign, um, as I note um, in the book, for a civilian complaint review board, And people define that civilian complaint would be more the advocates of it as one um, having um, power to investigate uh, and then uh, deciding on the punishment of uh, police officers. Uh, They should also have the power of subpoena to call witnesses. And this is what uh, civil rights groups, uh, grassroots organizations all push for. And they did have some support by um, the mid-1960s uh, from some elected officials. Uh, one of them was not Mayor Robert Wagner. <laughs> he was uh, completely uh, uh, opposed to this. He... Um, Essentially, he took the side of the police uh, when it came to the civilian complaint review board. Uh, uh, John Lindsay stepped up to run um, for mayor in 1965, and he said the first thing that he would do uh, as mayor was create a a predominantly civilian complaint review board. That is for uh, civilians and three police officers.
2: And until then, the CCRB or whatever panel existed, it was just staffed by people from the police department. That is true.
1: They had three. The deputy uh police commissioners uh running uh what they call the civilian complaint review board.
2: So they were reviewing complaints by civilians, but they were the police basically right. so totally investigating in- the police. There were no civilians who were uh you know part of this agency to hold police accountable or or conduct independent investigations at that point.
1: That's right. That's right. No civilians on on, on, on this uh, earlier board that was created in the early 1950s. Um, but Lindsay stepped forward and said that he would create this, um, essentially a compromise. You know, it was a moderate boy. He wasn't throwing all police officers off. That's what the city, that's what civil rights organizations wanted. They wanted, uh, an all civilian complaint review board. And Lindsay said, no, we'll have three police officers and three, uh, excuse me, four civilians. But that was even too much for the police, and their organization, the Potomac Benevolent Association, organized a racist campaign to uh, do away with this review board. Uh, uh, through executive orders, Lindsay created uh, a civilian complaint uh, review board, and the police launched this campaign, including, um, you know, going to court, uh, arguing that it was illegal, and they. Organize a referendum campaign. And they scared people, in particular white New Yorkers, by making the argument and what I which I call the false narrative, that if you create this review board, it's going to tie the hands of the police, and the criminals are going to essentially get the upper hand. They are going to win the day. And that worked. And so when um uh, at the end of the day, <laughs> the decision, the referendum was actually um, uh, voted uh, in support of that is doing away with this uh, uh, Lindsay's uh, civilian complaint review board. Now, what's important about that, uh, uh, that campaign, I argue, you know, police gain an extra- extraordinary amount of political power and they stepped out in the political arena. Right. And they had this false narrative um, that if you attempted to to go after them, then uh, or uh, attempt to make them quote ac- accountable, you are tying their hands, and essentially you are supporting criminals. And they have been using that argument ever since. So that's what De Blasio faced uh, when he um, t- attempted to put forth his um, police uh, reform. Agenda. And uh, of course, this is uh, shortly after he, yes, he did uh, uh, essentially curtail, didn't do away with the curtail, uh, stop question and frisk um, by essentially enforcing a court decision, right? Saying I will, you know, uphold the court decision. I will drop uh, the appeals of the city to challenge uh, uh, this court decision that said you have to stop racial profiling when it comes to stop questioning prison. Right.
2: And you, and you have to have a reason. You can't just That's like right. stop every, you know, young black guy that walks on the street. You have to right. fill out forms and there has to be a reasonable cause, et cetera.
1: That's right. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, he, he, he attempted to be sympathetic. Uh, uh, to uh, the family and criticize the police. And that's when the police sort of organized this campaign to uh, go after him. And then after the assassination of two police officers.
2: So let's let's talk about on. Eric Garner for a minute. Tell us what happened with that and, and how that uh, played into Mayor de Blasio's relationship with the cops.
1: Yes. Uh, one of... The uh, killings under um, uh, Mayor de Blasio was that of Eric Gardner and in Staten Island, uh, a young man who was accused of selling, quote, Lucys, uh, taking buying uh, packs of cigarettes, taking the cigarettes out and selling them uh, to make a profit. Uh, this fell under, this category of sort of broken windows policy, you know, sort of small, you have to stop small crimes uh, before they explode into larger ones. And so when he was uh, confronted uh, by police, uh, accused of selling uh, cigarettes, there's lots of questions whether he was doing that or not. Uh, uh, Witnesses said he was not uh, selling cigarettes, but said he was breaking up a fight. Uh, the police officers uh, restrained him when he um, asked him to leave him alone. And of course, uh, the one police officer, uh, Daniel Pantaleo, used an illegal chokehold, and uh, Eric Gardner uh, died on the scene. Right? Uh, of course, there were protests in New York City. Uh, the mayor came out and and spoke and, and said it was a horrendous. Uh, killing, and the the PBA became very upset with the mayor, criticized him, and then shortly after, two police officers who were sitting in a patrol car were shot to death by uh, some crazed man. and the police used that campaign and said that he is creating the atmosphere of just allowing the criminals to run wild. In fact, Patrick Lynch, head of the PBA, the claim that the mayor had blood on his hands. Uh, so it, it's this campaign uh of, along with the visible uh protests by the police act the, the police officers, the two police officers were shot at their funeral where they turned their back uh on on the police, that curtailed the mayor's um police reform agenda. He sort of backed away from that.
2: He absolutely did. Yeah. Um, and what? What is the? Do you know what the uh, makeup of the civilian complaint review board is today, in terms of uh, civilians versus cops? Oh yeah, it's all it's all civilians. It's, it's all they, civilians. Okay.
1: Yeah, that, that was changed under uh, uh, David Dinkins.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, um, and and so that certainly seems like you know there's been at least that much progress, right? Uh, well, and, and I, go God.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, when Dinkins um, pushed uh, with the support of the city council uh, for an all civilian complaint review board, there were massive protests, uh, one led by uh, his challenger, uh, Rudolph Giuliani. And this became an extremely nasty uh, protest where you had uh, off-duty police officers uh Using using the n word when referring to Dinkins, uh, pulling passages in particular, black passages from cars and beating them while you had on duty police officers not doing anything about it. Uh, Dinkins made it clear that it was Giuliani was responsible because Julie Giuliani spoke at a demonstration of these police officers riling them up, saying that Dinkins is, uh, the uh, the cause of uh, your problems. So um, Dinkins lost his uh, uh, re-election. I mean, he, he ran again and he lost to to Giuliani, and then that's when the all Complaint Review Board uh, went into effect. And what did Giuliani do? He tried to stop it. <laughs> he just sort of just dis- did, uh, didn't give it the resources the, they needed to do the investigation. So they can hire yeah. enough investigators. Yeah. Uh, to, to, to conduct their um, you know could essentially con- conduct their affairs so yeah I mean, it had the, the civilian complaint review board has had a turbulent history uh, in in, in uh, New York City uh, and yeah recently it has gained um, um, more power in um, but, you know, there are those who are calling you, you know, that you'd have a uh, complete uh, power to make decisions of uh, uh, on. Um when they rec- not just recommend, but they should be able to essentially a- a- enforce penalties against police officers.
2: Right. And, and it's probably worth noting that the officer who uh, was involved in the Eric Garner case, Pantaleo, uh, I believe he's still on the payroll of, of the NYPD. The case, I think, is, is uh, going to be in court uh, in 2019, right?
1: That That is correct. and uh, And he did get his back pay, by the way, when he was suspended. Yeah. It was people uh, to uh, criticize the mayor for that.
2: Yeah. And, and it, you know, and again, worth saying that a lot of these cases, which seem so, um, you know, the public and advocates for uh, people of color and Black Lives Matter movement, you know, on the one side, a lot of us will look at these videos or hear the details of these cases and say, like, this is obviously police brutality et cetera, et cetera. It works its way through the system. And many times, uh, you know, the police are acquitted. Juries often accept the argument that the police are doing their jobs in a situation or that they acted in a reasonable manner because, you know, they thought the person had a weapon or, you know, whatever. Um, So what, you know, what might seem to the public uh, like a kind of a cut and dried case, it doesn't always uh, play out uh, the way public sentiment at this point in our history, um, you know, I, I think the, the public sentiment is often on the side of the, you know, the victim. And, and um, it, it just, once things go through the system, it doesn't always end up with with what, you know, advocates might feel is is a just outcome, right?
1: No, yeah, no, no, no I, I agree with you. Uh... And you know so this also gets to the heart of you know uh de blasio's reforms right the the uh, de, uh, he he did um uh curtail uh stop question and frisk, but he uh is a strong supporter for broken windows uh he has not, not backed off of that.
2: Um, right, and and for for listeners who may not know, you know exactly what that is. That's a a policy that developed, you know, uh, a couple of decades ago. When New York was not such a bright and shiny place, we had a lot of uh, abandoned buildings, and you know, very high crime rate, and there was this philosophy that, uh, you know, if there was a broken window in a building, uh, that that could create an atmosphere of neglect, which could lead to criminal activity. So uh, that 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 sort of enabled or led to this policy on the part of the police department that any minor uh, infraction, you know, somebody uh, drinking a can of beer in public or, you know, uh, public urinating or, you know, riding a bike on the sidewalk, that any little infraction of uh, Uh, you know, any minor, uh, you know, public regulation, that they had the right to, you know, kind of uh, hit that person with the full force of the law. Um, And and in fact, the broken windows, the housing uh, department at one point, uh, literally like painted pictures on windows of abandoned buildings and and uh, to make them look like they were occupied they painted little window boxes and curtains and stuff it was it was truly surreal like we'll just pretend that people live in this building and it's well cared for and somehow uh you know that will become reality
1: yeah that's right um and people have don't realize uh the number of minor offenses people could get citations for and arrested, right. you know, right. Uh, right. and 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 so I mean you could be on the on on the subway and right. you can have a knapsack and a, a seat uh, that's not occupied and even if the the car is not crowded, you know, wind right. up uh, getting uh, in trouble.
2: Uh, absolutely my husband was walking our dog in Prospect Park one night not deep in the park but literally just on the edge of the park next to the sidewalk it was 5 minutes after midnight and he was given a citation for being in the park after midnight he he like literally was one had one foot inside the park on a patch of grass with the dog at 5 minutes after midnight furthermore he had no ID on him which was another whole you know infraction because right. we live around the corner Who knew that that was a crime? But under this policy, he had to go to court and see this thing through and I think pay a fine or something.
1: That's right. Criminalizing a whole bunch of uh, right. normal behavior, normal right.
2: activity, exactly. Um. Right. So, what are your what are your thoughts at this point on on progress in curbing curbing police brutality? I was I was in touch uh, recently with Alex Vitali, another CUNY professor who wrote a fantastic book called The End of Policing. Uh, he yeah. does a lot of uh, research on police brutality. Uh, you know, and he sent me this great chart, which I don't have the figures in front of me, but he said, you know, the number of people who have died at the hands of New York. Uh, police has dropped substantially over the years. Um, So, uh, you know, cases may be a lot more controversial and they may stay in the news longer uh, because we do have cell phone video now. We're not just relying on the Black press of the mid-20th century to give us these non-official accounts, right? Um, there's, I think, a greater understanding of the way in which people of color in general are, you know, maybe abused by the criminal justice system. And I just wonder, you know, what are your thoughts on this kind of overall? Are you, are you heartened at all? Or is there still such a long way to go? What What's your take on where we are now, maybe compared to where we were, and maybe compared to where you'd like to see us go?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I, you know, Alex is right. Um, uh, it- In terms of uh, uh, people being killed by the police, uh, I mean, that has uh, dramatically uh, gone down. But police brutality is larger than (laughs) uh, just killings, right? Uh, They're the everyday offenses that take place. Uh, People arrested for, we we were just talking about uh, what you call normal uh, activities. Uh, And uh, yeah, there's clearly progress i i i make the argument i i think de blasio uh and uh, the police the anti uh police brutality campaign have made uh loads uh, of uh, of steps you know they they have won uh, many court decisions right um uh there's now monitoring uh of uh the police federal monitoring uh of, of the police department. Uh, so, yeah, so there, there, there have been these uh, many steps that have taken, but I, I, and there's still, I guess, there are too many arrests of black and brown people uh, in the city. Um, there, I mean, You can go into uh, any court you know, in Queens or <laughs> in Brooklyn, and you can see the number of uh, people who uh, have been arrested uh, for, uh, you know, any sorts of crimes, you know, marijuana now has become a, a, a major focus, uh, uh, in the city where the mayor, uh, clearly is opposed to what uh, certain DAs in the, in the city want to do and not, you know, just uh, arrest people, and give them, you know, um, Uh, summonses and so forth. But, uh, you know, I I find that ironic when I turn around and I see uh, people also, some people who have more money are making millions of dollars off of uh, marijuana sales. So, uh, you know, whether it's municipal marijuana and so forth. But so, yeah, I I think that there's been progress, but we have to keep pushing on. I'd be pushing you on because, uh, you know, that incident that took place, um, you described at the beginning with this young woman uh, having uh, a child snatched from her. Uh, I mean, too many of those incidents are still taking place in the city, right? The young man who was shot and killed, uh, last year in Brooklyn, right? Uh, who was, uh, uh, a, a disturbed young man, uh, who had a piece of pipe in his hand and the police went after him and shot him. Um, uh, yeah, so, uh. The, 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 but it's you know not just those horrendous incidents. Like I said, this is a sort of ordinary, everyday uh, incidents that are taking place in, uh, in the streets uh, of the city that we ne- we still ha- we have to address. And I, and I make the argument: you can't really address that problem unless you decrease the the, the power of the police. Now, I know that's controversial, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, uh, it, 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 the the fact that they have uh, this wide range, so people um, uh, can be uh, arrest, uh, you know, police still have a power to arrest people for you know, numerous incidents. You know, I think you know that needs to be curtailed. It needs to be curtailed. I think we need to empower give the, the civilian complaint review board <laughs> real power to 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 really address. Uh, uh, the, uh, the infractions by, uh, police officers, uh, and, and so I, and I recommend other, uh, steps, uh, in my book that I think, um, yeah, the city needs to adopt, not to, not just the city, but, uh, you know, um, throughout the nation. I mean, New York is better than, uh, many police departments, uh, in, um, in the country, But, you know, it's not perfect.
2: All right. Well, we have been talking to Clarence Taylor, Professor Emeritus at Baruch College and the CUNY Graduate Center, about his new book, Fight the Power, African-Americans and the Long History of Police Brutality in New York City. Thank you, Professor Taylor, for all this insight and uh, a lot of food for thought here today. Good luck with the book. Oh, thank you very much. And I'm Beth Harpaz, the editor of the CUNY website, SUM, SUM.cuny.edu signing off for the Gotham Center for New York City History and New Books Network. All right, let me stop.